Hello and welcome to episode 16 of The Wind Thieved Hat. Today I'm talking to Nicola Davies. My first encounter with Nicola was back in the 1980s. She was on my telly in the corner of my living room and she was presenting The Really Wild Show. It's a great show all about animals and uh, and I loved it very much. My second encounter with her was at a family gathering when I discovered with a double take that Nicola and my wife are related. Today, Nicola's a writer. She's written over 60 books, many of them award-winning, and they are mostly for children and young adults. In our conversation, Nicola describes the joy of seeing and the fizz of understanding. She talks about why, despite studying for a PhD in zoology, she could never have been a scientist. And she speaks with a, a devastating eloquence about the importance of creativity in these troubled times. Oh, and you'll also get to discover why microbes make snowflakes. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 16 of The Wind Thieved Hat. So we, we are actually now officially recorded. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, we're on. Mm. Uh, um, so, yeah, it's just a sort of informal chat. Um, <laughs> Not despite, a job interview then. No, no, despite the fact I'm sitting here with a list of questions. Oh, oh God, that's um, a bit scary. Uh, and a massive pile of books um, written by you. It's, I, don't, I haven't counted them up recently. I think, it's, I think it's more than 60 now. Right, really? Yeah. And then most of them still in print. Which is, you know, really, really That's nice. Great. Yeah, you'd think they'd make me more royalties, wouldn't you? All those books <laughs> out there, never mind. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 um, I've done a little bit of research. Ooh. Um, and I, I, I sort of, I was looking at your blog and I read a couple of sentences. He said, you, you wrote, I spent my entire childhood bodging and inventing things, puppets, painted owls, weird little figurines, peculiar clothes and costumes. Making things feels sort of essential to me. And I thought that'd be a nice place to begin. So it sounds like a very creative childhood. That's what I did. Because I was the the youngest of three. And my nearest sibling is 10 years older than me. And I was the child of um, older parents who were very, very preoccupied with their own traumas and dramas. I was very solitary. Um, and I was geeky and fat. Um, which meant that making friends was always tricky. Um, and so I, I, I lived my childhood very much on my own. And what I did was make things um, all the time. Um, drawing, I made little puppets, I made a puppet theatre, uh, all, all sorts of things. I was always, I was always making, sewing doing something but never never expertly at all that's yeah. why I said it was bodging yeah. my mother used my mother who was a wonderful seamstress um used to used to watch me with a needle and say oh you hold a needle like a poker and just not look right because it was you know I'd make I, I used I got involved in the school plays when I was in secondary school and I sometimes made costumes for the school plays and and I'd you know, I'd take an old curtain and I'd think, oh, well, OK, I could do that, cut that there. And I'd do it without a pattern um, and do it in the most scruffy crap way possible. But it would look all right at a distance. And of course, that would, you know, set my mother's teeth on edge, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's that sort of um, not caring too much about the sort of quality of the outcome that, that allows us to create, isn't it, I think? And often people are inhibited by being really fearful about whether something's going to be good or not, and, uh, and it sort of puts the brake on their creativity. Well, I think that, I, I think in my writing, very much so, it puts a brake on my creativity, because a lot of what I've done have been picture books and poetry. Well, actually, not so much poetry, because poetry is a kind of freer space, and also the way in which I work on poems tends to be I give myself license to do that. But picture books are an incredibly exacting uh, form. And I have to have my internal editor absolutely on maximum the whole time. 
And that's kind of part of the craft and the discipline. But it is also incredibly inhibiting sometimes. Mm. So when I come to write longer things, I sometimes struggle to let that let the break off and let things flow. And is that because your your the, a, a picture book has a sort of certain format, and you're you're having to think about how the illustrations will work? Why? why, why? It, well, first and foremost, with picture books, it's because you've got very few words. I mean, okay. you know, you've got between two and six hundred words for a picture book. Um, so everything, every moment, every syllable has to absolutely earn its place. Um, and that's and that's really 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 tough. But that's why I love picture books so much. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I I like that challenge, and I like the fact that you can put over something incredibly big and incredibly powerful in a form that is accessible across ages, across cultures, across everything. There are there are very undervalued art form actually in our culture uh, people are beginning to get it a bit more in in the UK and certainly in America but in but in France and Italy people really get it about picture books and why do you think that is why, why is it undervalued I don't know and... I don't know enough about the history of of publishing in in, in Europe to be able to say mm. but I think there's something about the eccentricity Right. Of picture books that 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 fits certainly fits the Italian psyche, yeah, uh, and and people are very comfortable with yeah. in a way that they're not so much here. And I think also in the UK generally with children's literature and and anything to do with children's culture or cultural provision for children, we are still suffering from the bring me the child who goes with my blue outfit, you know. Children should be seen and not heard, yeah. and only brought down to the drawing room to be displayed. Uh, and and anything to do with children's culture is kind of second class and uh, 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 and undervalued. So I think that's you know that's another problem around mm. uh, 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 around getting people to recognise and read picture books. Mm. You you had this this sort of childhood of bodging, um, and then you went to university and you studied zoology. Um, so the, 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 this interest in animals, which one will encounter throughout your work, was 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 there fairly early on. Absolutely. I mean, I you know I can remember lying on my tummy in the garden when I before I went to school and lifting up paving, you know, little edges of paving stones and looking at things underneath. And um, both my my father and my grandfather were, were really keen naturalists. I mean, my father trained as a biologist, but my grandfather, my little round grandfather was uh, was a fantastic gardener uh, and really really good at spotting things so he showed me birds nests and I was out in the garden with him a lot as a little kid um, and also with my father I, mean, I think one of my very very first memories is of is of a tulip and being the same height as a tulip um, I mean, I'm not that much taller than the <laughs> No, I know. But um, so I was very little, and I remember the joy of looking inside this flower and the shine inside the tulip's petals, Great. and the bumblebee going in, and also the other thing that goes with that, with that visceral, deep pleasure, visual, sensory pleasure. Is, is the voice of my father explaining what was going on, telling me about what the bee was doing. So those two things, the kind of s the science, mm -hmm. the factual explanation mm -hmm. and the visceral pleasure have always, for me, been intimately connected. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's what I'm always trying to to feed into yeah. in my books the pleasure the joy but also the joy of knowing yeah the fizz in yeah. your brain yeah. of understanding yes so i, I am somebody who, who goes to university and studies uh, something with a scientific orientation like zoology um, might not necessarily end up writing 
fiction and books and poetry and making music and art and you do all of these things so I'm interested so because I guess you could have gone off in a in a more sort of research led career or or, or something more science based and less creative I I nearly did I, I started a PhD and I got to the final year of my PhD but um you know, PhDs need to kind of carry a government health warning, really. I was in fairly poor condition uh, by the final year of my PhD. I'm too impatient to be a scientist. Right. I, I love the detective story. Yeah. And I love reading the detective stories and talking to scientists, which I do a lot for research, about the progress of their various natural history detective stories. But... The thing about science is you need statistically sized samples, which means you have to do things again and again and again. And I have a boredom threshold lower than a snake's belly. Yeah. Um, so plus the fact that I'm really practically enumerate. So, you know, I, my maths is rubbish. Yeah. So really, I wasn't actually okay. cut out yeah. to be a proper scientist. Right. Right. I'm very grateful for that yeah. scientific training, but actually, I've always really have an art, have had an artist's brain. Right, and and a lot of you know, the, the, there's a sort of wealth of knowledge in these books, which comes, I guess, from that education. Well, it, and, you and know, I tell you what, it comes partly from education, but it comes from watching endless BBC documentaries about wildlife. Right, you know, <laughs> that's mostly yeah. where that comes right. from. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> so my first experience of you was watching you in my living room in Leeds on the telly. Oh my god! In the 1980s. Um, with Terry Nutkins and Chris Packham yeah. on the Really Wild show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how did you end up on TV? Well, I was in the final year of my PhD. Um, and my, I did my first degree in, in Cambridge, but I did my PhD in Bristol. And the Bristol um, Zoology Department at the time had a very well-worn path up White Ladies Road to the BBC Natural History Unit. So several PhD students from my department who I knew had already gone yeah, that way okay. it's geographically quite close I it's was there like, yeah it's about two minutes walk yeah, up the yeah. road so I you know I walked up the road um knocked on the door and at that time although it was difficult to get in it was possible and I was just persistent um and I got a job as a researcher uh, and then I think I'd been working there as a researcher you know short-term contracts for a year perhaps and I auditioned for, for the really wild show. show. And were we there at the beginning? Was, was it? Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I worked on the production team yeah, that, okay. that created the program. So yeah. me, Alistair Fothergill, who, oh, yeah. who is Silverback Films. Yeah. Um, you know, and various other people who went on to be luminaries in the uh, uh, natural history unit, yeah. and whose names I saw for years on the, the credits of uh, of documentaries, worked on that series, and it was at the time really exciting and really groundbreaking. But it also gave me my first taste of writing because I was having to write the scripts that I was presenting and I was also I producing items for the yeah. programme. Um, I was a terrible television producer. Um, you've got to have quite sharp elbows, as you know, to be a yeah. television producer, and I just don't have very sharp elbows. Um, You're a very good presenter. But, I, yeah, well... Yeah, I would be better now, actually, because I wouldn't be nervous. But, you know, that's another story. But I, 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 I realised that I found the script writing much easier than my contemporaries. OK. And that's what gave me the kind of confidence to start thinking about writing. And obviously, the, uh, the Really Wild show was a, a show aimed at kids. Yeah. Um, and were you, were you thinking early on that, that that was a particular kind of audience that you wanted to talk to or engage with? I think so. I think I've, al- I've always got on well with children and always felt very comfortable talking to children. Uh, it's because I'm not really a grown-up. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm eight on the inside. Yeah. Uh, and so I've... You know, when I, now with, when I work with audiences of children... You know, I go into a school hall and there's 300 kids standing there. I don't see the adults. I literally do not see the adults. I only see the children. Yeah. Uh, and I am more comfortable and more at home in those moments of connection with a live audience of children than I am at any other time in my life, really. Okay. Um, so, 
And I think I felt that straight away with The Really Wild Show. Because with the first series of The Really Wild Show, as you know, because you watch them, we had a live studio audience. Yes, I remember. So we had, you know, hordes of Bristol school I wanted school to be kids. in that audience. I wanted to hold oh, a tra- no, tarantula. I, you, no. I, t- I could tell you yeah. stories that would absolutely cure you. Right. So, and, and I... And I really like that and I really like the experience of sitting in with the kids and chatting to kids in the audience that was that was really lovely and at that time I had already been I mean since I was a student I when I was a student I started a a little a little undergraduate club to go and do wildlife talks in Cambridge schools so I'd you know had that experience of working with kids right from my um right from early on yeah and and the vast majority of your books are for kids and young adults. You've written some for yeah. under a pseudonym, haven't you? Yeah, for, for yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote, I, when I when I uh, when I first started writing, I my first decent financially decent contract came from Hodder to write uh, three n- novels sort of sex and shopping well they're not quite sex and shopping novels but there is quite a lot of sex <laughs> in them um uh for 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 grown-ups okay um uh, uh, and that came about because i was writing a column for the independent at the time under a pseudonym uh and then i wrote those those three novels um which i got paid lots of money for and sold about three copies i get marvelous negative Royalty statements to this day really? that I look at and sort of okay. slightly blanch. You know? <laughs> right. And, and do, you, do you remember the first book you wrote for kids? The first book I wrote for kids... Well, actually, the very first book I wrote for kids was actually a BBC book to go with the BBC series. Um, uh, it, was, it was really boring and very constrained by the, the format of fitting in with the series that it was accompanying. But the book that I think of as my very first book for children proper book um is big blue whale and that happened by accident i was because i'd studied blue whales in the wild or i'd been part of a study on blue whales in the wild in the indian ocean i got to be scientific consultant for walker books who have been now my main publisher for more than 20 years and um the person who was writing this book on blue whales for which I was scientific consultant. I don't know he, who he was consulting, probably his drug dealer by the look of the text he was turning out. So I was continually sending it back and saying, look, no, they're not purple and actually they don't have legs. Really nothing, no yeah. mammals in the sea lay eggs. Really not a good plan. Okay. So in the end, Walker Books turned around to me in utter frustration and said, I'll just go away and write it. Okay. It then took me 10 years to kind of, be able to to work enough in writing mm. to make my living. So it took ten years of doing other jobs alongside. And did you at what at what point did you feel comfortable calling yourself a writer? Oh wow, that's a really good question. I think probably quite early on, yeah. actually. Okay. Because even with that first book, I think probably my first four picture books. And, and of course, by that time, I'd also written three adult novels. And although they were spectacularly unsuccessful, you know, they were published. They did have a legitimate ISBN yeah. number on the back of them. Yeah. So I kind of felt, OK, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. a writer. And I, 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 I got a lectureship in um, creative writing. My agent, my lovely first agent, Lizzie Kramer, Lizzie rang me and said, there's a job as a, create, as, a, as a lecturer in creative writing at Bath Spa. I think you should apply. And I just laughed. And she said, you should apply. So I applied. I got an interview, went to the interview. I can remember I sat on the edge of the desk and swang my legs. I was completely relaxed. I thought, this is bloody ridiculous. Mm. <clears throat> there is no way on earth they're going to give me this job. And they gave me the job. And, and actually, for the first year of doing that, that lectureship, I kept thinking, very much in the way that my first year at university, I kept thinking, somebody's going to find out in a minute and send me home. I I felt that. And then I realised, looking at undergraduate and then postgraduate work, I I did know about writing. Actually, somehow Mm. I did know. I Mm. could look at it like somebody mending a bicycle. I could say, okay, move that to there, get rid of that, sharpen that up, oil that, connect that to that, and this will work. 
and I could do it. Mm. Um, and actually, that's really when I realised mm. that I was a writer. Mm. And when you, were, when you were teaching creative writing, did you, um, did you find that, um, that there were any common sort of limits that people had when they were writing? Did you have to push them through barriers? Or? There was a wonderful exercise that my uh, lovely colleague, Julia Green, and I came up with when we were um, teaching the, uh, the postgraduate course in creative writing for young people is that after we'd acquainted ourselves with what our current batch of students were comfortable with, we would give them a tailored writing exercise that was right out of their comfort zone. Okay. So if they'd come wanting to write for teenagers, we'd say, okay, you're writing a picture book for four-year-olds, you have 200 words, uh, and, and, and the reverse. And actually, that was fantastic because what it did for lots of the students was either it confirmed them in their in their desire to write for their chosen yeah. age group or in quite a lot of cases it made them discover a whole other area of creativity that they hadn't even thought about and they could then explore right um so that was that was really really mm. good making mm. people push their boundaries uh, we've got this big stack of books here that I've been looking through and um many of which I've read to my own kids. Um, and and there, are, there are some works which are fiction, and there are some works which are non-fiction, and there are some that sort of, you know, straddle the two. Do you, do you find, um, do you find a, a, one more rewarding than the other, or one easier to write, or, um, or are, you, are you comfortable just traversing? What I really like is narrative. Narrative is a psychological carrier bag. Uh, and by narrative, I mean a piece of writing with a shape, a beginning, a middle and an end that is portable, portable in your heart and your head. Uh, and narrative will carry anything. It will carry facts. It will carry fiction. Um, it, it doesn't matter. So for me, it's the narrative that is important and constructing a narrative that is the right size and shape to carry what I want it to carry. Having said that, increasingly I am drawn to things that are fictional. I'll, I'll always want to put stuff about the natural world into my work and humans' relationship with it. But one of the reasons why, um, why I now want to write things that are more fiction-based is, first of all, I want to deliver a bigger emotional hit and... Very straight non-fiction doesn't always do that. Although mm. I always try to do it, it's harder. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, when you're writing non-fiction, it's, like it's like being a football manager. Everybody thinks they can tell you their job, their, your job. Yeah. You know? Uh, everybody's got an opinion. You write fiction, you turn around to an editor and say, I made it up. That's the way it is. And they can't argue. And, and I'm old and jaded and a bit tired <laughs> and I am fed up with editors who were in nappies when I started yeah. writing telling me this do it like this yeah. and I just feel like saying That's interesting. no not yeah. going to yeah so there's a bit more magic about non-fiction that seems a bit more mystical and, and yeah I'll, I'll never give up give up on writing a non-fiction I'm feeling particularly grumpy about it at the moment because yeah. what I'm writing now is extremely the book I'm writing at the moment is very very difficult mm -hmm. is driving me to distraction mm -hmm. and I'm longing to get back to something where it's I can do what I want you yeah know, I can drive off I can drive over the lines yeah you know? how, how, how does it work at this stage for you do you uh, do you do you propose to the publisher or, or does the publisher say look we could do with a book on on blue whales or? The, the vast majority of that stack of books um, are my ideas that I then pitch. Okay. Occasionally, a publisher will come to me and say, we want something kind of about this. Um, for instance, I, uh, last two years ago, um, a publisher approached me and said they wanted a book about the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. And they wanted something quite conventional. They wanted something that actually described the rights and went through the process and the history and da-da-da. 
Uh, and initially I said, okay, because I'm a good freelance, you know, and you know, you mm. just say, yes, I'll do that. Mm. Even if you're thinking, oh, Christ. Mm. Um, but actually I came out of the meeting and walked down the road out of the big posh offices and thought, I am, well, I was at the time, it was before I was 60. I'm nearly 60. Am I really doing, going to go on doing things that I don't believe in? So I went back to them and I said, I'll do you a book that will be something about the UNCRC, but I'm not doing a straight non-fiction. Uh, if you want somebody to do that, then that's not me. And God love them. They agreed, even though they were desperately uncomfortable. Uh, and I then wrote um, Every Child a Song, which is kind of a poem that is about a celebration of the UNCRC. Um, and I think it's, a, it's a, a, a lovely book and it does seem to be being picked up by people and doing the job that I wanted it to do. So, you know, I, I try and twist things to the form that I want to write and the things that suit my skills and my heart. Where do you think your ideas come from? Have you, have, you, have you found um, <laughs> the biscuit aisle on Tesco's? Because um, yeah. uh, uh, I've, I've talked to quite a few people now with this podcast, and one of the things I've discovered is that quite often uh, creative people have a, have, a, have a thing that they do, or that they that sort of disengages their brain a little bit, and it's it's then that the ideas sort of percolate through. So I often go for a run, and and it's when I'm sort of you know in that rhythm of pounding. Along um, and I'm sort of disengaged that things just seem to float into my head. I wondered if there was something similar for you. Well, uh, running when I'm okay. if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm writing something long, like I've got a big I've got a big first long fiction I've done in 15 years to write next year, and I, uh, running will get me th- when I when I'm stuck with a piece of plot or I don't know what a character is doing or why they've done what they've done in my head. I go for a run and on the last half mile of my four mile route, I'll know. Right, yeah. Um, But the initiation of ideas is very visual. Okay. So um, I wanted to be a painter when I was young and I didn't for various reasons pursue it. Uh, And I've come back to, well, I've never really left it. I've always drawn a bit. But I've come back to it now and actually I've just finished the illustrations for my first self-illustrated picture book. And pictures, pictures, looking at pictures. You know, I think of, very often think of David Hockney saying, I get a lot of pleasure through the eyes. And I understand that. That When I heard him say that, that went straight into my heart. Because looking is where... Yeah. So many of my ideas come from. Yeah, that's interesting. Given that, given that your your principal medium to this point has been words, yeah, that, that, that's that's really interesting. And and just going back to something that you said at the beginning. So um, I did a talk the other week about um, creativity, and um, I talked quite a bit about Carita Kent. Do you know Carita? No, Kent? I don't. You, you, I think you like Carita Kent. So Carita Kent was a nun, yeah, in um, America, Catholic nun. And there was an art school nearby and she learned to screen print. And she became more known for her art practice than her religious practice. And she created these um, works which are very unnun-like. They're sort of big and bold with really big letters. They're quite a little bit sort of pop art and bright primary colours. She's an amazing woman. And um, she became a teacher after a while. And and in the end, the, the Catholic Church couldn't do with her sort of art and fame so so she 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 left one of the things i admire most about her are 10 rules of making which she put up in her in her art room she said follow these rules until you find something better but one of them is don't make and analyze at the same time they're different processes mm. um and one of the things i've found in my writing is that it works much better if I just sit down and say, right, I'm just going to write this thing and I'm not going to worry if it's any good or not. I'm not going to think the opening sentence is shit. I'm just going to do it. And then once it's there, I'll go back and, and fiddle with it. 
early on, I would very much like, I would write the opening sentence, think, oh, that's not very good opening sentence. I go back to the beginning of the opening sentence, and before I knew it, I'd spent eight hours on an opening sentence, which was incredibly tortuous and overwrought. So I'm interested in, because in, you, you were saying, you know, that editing is happening almost simultaneously, yeah. isn't it, for you, when you write? The thing about writing non-fiction, like the horribly ghastly process I'm going through at the moment, is, is you have to do the analysis, actually. Right. You, you, sometimes you just have to. As you go along. You, you have to. Yeah. Um, the thing I'm writing at the minute, for example, is a snapshot of the world at one moment in time, which means I have to think about location, time, season, and whether this thing is an exciting thing to put in a book. And I have to think about that because that's what it is. Mm. So the analysis is absolutely part of it. Having said that, the books of which I am most proud are all the ones that I have sat down and just written. And they are all fiction. So The Promise, King of the Sky, uh, Every Child a Song, um, all of those, The Day War Came, uh, all of those are things that I just wrote. And I want to do more of that. So mm. it's up to me now mm you know, because I'm ancient and I haven't got that much longer. Um, I just need to make sure that I structure my working life and I have the confidence and the, yeah, it's about confidence, actually, the confidence to just say, OK, this is how I'm working. Yeah. yeah. This is how I'm going to work because this is how I work best. Yeah. Because um, so, that, yeah. that feeling, I think anybody who, who makes stuff can relate to it, of when whatever you're working on seems to come out in spite of you, that's as good as it gets as a yeah, creator, it is. isn't it? It's, it's wonderful. That's like a it's beautiful feeling where, you, where you're almost like you're just the tool to sort of, you know, yeah. lay it down. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant thing. It is. Creative and I, flow. Th- that, th- the summer that, that's just passed that, I, when I was doing the illustrations for um, uh, a book about extinction called Last, my, was just wonderful to be spending every day making images and thinking about images every waking moment and dreaming about them was absolutely fantastic. And if I can possibly repeat that so that I am illustrating my own texts, uh, that's how mm. I want to spend the rest of my life. Great. Good to know. <laughs> let's, uh, let, let's talk specifically about a few books then. Because, you know, I've been doing my research. So it'd be man, a, I'm so it, impressed. It would be a shame uh, not to bring it into the conversation. <laughs> um, so the, one of the books you mentioned just there was The Promise, mm. which is an amazing book. Powerful, beautiful. It's got... Um, it's got a real sort of um, sense of place and presence and character, um, which is through the writing. Also, the oh, exceptional illustrations. Laura Carlin is a genius. Yeah, so um, it's um, it's written in the first person uh, that book, and I, I wondered if it was that how it came to you, or was that a... quite often? I write in first person, and uh, and actually, that feeling of text just coming is something that comes with first person where I am inside that character where I put myself inside that character and when I'm writing longer things quite often I will write a first draft in first person even if I use third finally because it gets you into the centre of what's going on Um, occupy the character yeah absolutely And, and with the promise I I thought about that text for a long time. I was asked to write uh, a picture book version of The Man Who Planted Trees, the very, very famous Jean Genot book that was translated into a million languages that was the kind of, uh, that tapped into the early zeitgeist of the environmental movement sort of 60 years ago. And I, uh, I, I said to my, I don't want to write 
a version of somebody else's story. I'll write you something that does the same job, but I want something that uh, that speaks about children's experience and children's experience in cities because tree planting in cities is incredibly important for children's well-being and, you know, local climate change and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, didn't write anything down. And I came away, came back from a holiday and sat down at my desk on, Monday, on the Monday morning and it, it was done in two hours. And I don't really know how. Yeah. And, I and we haven't wow. changed a word. Really? Yeah. But of course, finding Laura. Yeah. As soon as I saw, I saw Laura's illustrations for the Iron Man, for yeah. which she won. What did she win the Greenway? I can't remember. She won something big. She might have done. Yeah. Now yeah. I don't think she's ever. She's stupid. She hasn't ever won the Greenway. Oh right, no. really? Anyway, I looked at those illustrations and thought, her handling of space. Yeah. Of, the yeah. space of a page, right. is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as I saw those, I thought, that's the person who so has you, to do the promise. You had the text already. Yeah, yeah, you'd, yeah. You'd written yeah, the yeah, text. Yeah. So then, then you, um, so you, you have some, uh, the publisher doesn't just give you an illustrator. Um, you, you... Walker, don't, know. Okay. Tell me a little bit then about what happens. I imagine there's that sort of little bit of courtship that goes on in there's the creative a, there's relationship. A, there's, a, there's, relationship. A, there's, a, there's a sometimes quite tense meeting between me my editor and the art director, and I will come with an atmosphere that I want for my text. Okay. The art director will come for some an illustrator who she wants to champion. Okay. Um, and and I say it's tense. Actually, it's very it's very not, often yeah. not yeah. because we we usually are singing off the same page. Yeah. So you have that initial meeting where yeah. you sort of just talk through the yeah. your ideas and, and they their talk ideas. through their ideas, and actually that's. That is really, really, really lovely. And yeah. illustrators vary in the amount of input they want. And also, publishing has changed in the time that I've been writing. It, when I started, publishers didn't want to put illustrators and writers in the same room together. It was like matter and antimatter, you know. Right. Um, so I never met the illustrators of my first picture books. Well, I, I met Nick Malin because I knew Nick. Nick was, yeah. Nick was a friend. But, uh, you know, Bat Loves the Night and um, Tiny Turtle, I never met the mm. illustrators of those two books. But now I do meet the illustrators mm. and, uh, and that relationship and that conversation is fantastic, really, mm. really fantastic. Mm. I'm just looking at the title you've got there. You've got Just Ducks. Salvatore Rubino, who is wonderful and a million-carat sweetheart as well, he has just done the illustrations for a, a, a fiction of mine with its toes in the real world about um, about albatross bycatch and a boy in Chile in South America and he has done the most stunningly beautiful job and Salvatore haven't, and I haven't met to talk about that book mm, mm. he has just seen into the soul of that story mm. and understood it mm. so you know, sometimes it mm. just happens through the genius of illustrators. Yeah. And actually, the, the, the very, very best result from an illustrator is you look at what they've done and you think, my God, that's wonderful. And yeah. I could never have thought of it. Yeah, yeah. So they've brought that extra thing. And, and Laura is the yeah. the absolute yeah. mistress of that. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's great that you're uh, doing your own illustrations now. But I guess... It's, it, it, you must have learned an extraordinary amount through having worked with some oh brilliant Oh my God, illustrators. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And actually the process of doing the illustrations for that book, my illustrator friends, they've all been incredibly supportive and helpful. Um, just And basically just saying, keep going, keep going, keep yeah. going, keep going. Yeah. So moving from illustrated books to uh, ones uh, without pictures... Uh, so I I, um, uh, I I immersed myself in that sounds wrong. I was going to say I immersed myself in Whale Boy at the weekend. Oh right, oh did you? Um, but I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was great. I had a little bit of a cold, so I was in a slightly drifty state. And oh, I was that's a good good carried, state to carried, be in. Carried to the Caribbean, and, and one, one of the one of the wonderful things about that book, um, it's a cracking cracking narrative which Aww, sort of rockets you. along. 
But the, um, the, the, the scenes where Michael is with the whales in the water are extremely vividly written, I think. Um, and I, 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 could, I could feel your joy at being in the water with whales in those moments, I think. I, and, and because um, there were, there were, there were, I remember you describing the sort of the eye and the, the sort of the surface of the skin around the eye. And it felt, um, it felt vivid because it didn't, it was surprising in a way. Yeah. You know, some, of the, some of the textures and the things that you described. So that, presumably that was born out of you spending time yeah. in the water. Well, actually not spending whales. time in the water. Okay. Um, uh, once a very, very long time ago, I was in the water with a group of, a group of sperm whales who swam away from me extremely quickly, of course. Um, but actually, the work that I've done um, on my friend's boat, Belena, my old friend, Hal Whitehead, who is now, you know, the greatest whale scientist of his generation, I'm working on his boat. We don't get in the water with the whales because it's bad for them, because right. they, they, they need to keep a wariness of of okay. humans and boats, which is, you know, the, the message behind Whale Boy, yeah. really. But they come so close to yeah. the boat. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 in the Caribbean and in the Indian Ocean yeah. and in the Sea of Cortez, the three places where I've studied whales and particularly sperm whales, the youngsters and the youngster that, that Michael's whale is, is based on, which is a, a, a young male who I uh, got to know, who, who the... The researchers named Tram Tracks because he had orcas scars down his face. Um, Tram Tracks was very, very curious and he would swim right up to the boat. Mm. So you could look through the water and see every feature mm. around his eyes wow. and his big snout and all the peeling skin that they have yeah. all the time. And look into that intelligent eye. And look eye. into that eye. And, yeah. and the, it's the look back. Yeah. It's being... It's being looked at. Yeah. I, I, I once um, swam with uh, uh, pan-tropical spotted dolphins in the Indian Ocean. And I was holding onto a rope behind the boat. Uh, and the dolphins were all around me, very, very close, echolocating. So I could feel their clicks going through my body. And you really do feel them go through your body. So they're examining the condition of your liver, which is a bit embarrassing. Um, and um, their look. Yeah. yeah. Their look, assessing, yeah. cool. Yeah. Actually, ultimately, quite bored. Yeah. And swimming away. Right. It's fabulous. <laughs> and that um, one of the things about the book, um, which you've sort of obliquely alluded to, there is the ending. Uh, I don't. I don't want to. Don't want to spoil it <laughs> for anybody. But it, it, it finishes with a deliberate act of cruelty, I yes. suppose. Um, which I, which I was quite you know it's like oof, yeah um, it, it it might have been easier to finish the book in another way but I but I, I wondered about that were, were you deliberately heading yeah. it sounds like you were heading there to that, that was point. the destination yeah. and, and and I you know Random House my lovely editor at Random House Natalie Doherty she was fantastic she let me do that mm. I mean and we both knew that that commercially. Because it's not very that Hollywood, was, is it? It's that 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 ending shot that book, the the commercial prospects of that book straight between the eyes, and I knew that. Right. But that point and was I so important. I could not step away from it. Yeah. Because it was true. Yeah. That was yeah. that was the, the it uh, it's the truth of that situation. Yeah. Uh, and I have seen that play out, particularly in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, where a lot of uh, whale watching, um, commercial whale watching is going on and whales are getting lulled into a sense of security where they get close to boats and think being close to boats is comfortable and safe and it is neither of those things for mm. sperm whales. Mm. Um, and the injuries that they suffer as a result of collisions and the potential for damage to that species because of close association mm. with boats and people is mm. it's not like grey whales it's not it's not the same situation right. at all okay 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's okay if we describe the ending. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's a boy who's, who's developed this extraordinary relationship with a whale, come to discover these whales and develop this closeness. And then at the end of the book, he, he deliberately injures the whales so that the whale knows not to trust humans. Yes, knows not to trust humans because humans are, as far as the natural world is concerned, generally fundamentally untrustworthy. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, and there was another message that I wanted to deliver there. You know, you you hear if you if you Google swimming with dolphins or swimming with whales, there are commercial tour operators around the world who offer that experience, and some of them are fantastic and very very caring and very careful and very respectful. But the vast majority are none of those things. Yeah. And you very very often hear people saying oh, my life was changed by swimming with a dolphin. Well, I can guarantee that no dolphin swims back to its pod and says, oh, I swam with a dentist from Milwaukee and my life is changed. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Uh, And I think we are very selfish Mm. in our thinking. And and we need to stop being selfish. We we only tell stories from our perspective. And it's about time we start to think about the stories of our brother and sister species around the globe yeah. from their perspective. And I'm very pleased you said that because <laughs> um, they, so one of, there's, a, there's a lovely coda at the end of that book where you, you talk about sperm whales. And um, if I remember it correctly, um, you sort of postulate there that, that sperm whales have a language uh, and that we, we've not been able to decode it yet. But there is probably quite sophisticated communication going on uh, between these animals and one thing I'm sort of I've been reading about and exploring a little bit is that dimension in animal behavior which perhaps for centuries we've presumed they don't have and we thought is exclusively a human domain but now we're beginning to understand so there's that great clip on YouTube of a crow with a bottle top sledging down a roof and he's just doing it for the joy of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So so we understand that animals play now um, and and perhaps not just to learn things but to just for the pure joy of playing. And and I wonder too, I I want to talk to you a bit about creativity in animals and and do you think, do do you you see any displays of creativity in animal behaviour? There's a very uh, interesting piece of research that I've just been reading this week, actually, about bowhead whales. Now, bowhead whales are very extraordinary. They're the very, very high Arctic whales. They live for over 200 years. Uh, They have a menopause. Uh, So the females go on living for a long time after they've had babies. So there has to be a biological function for that. Um, And this research has just discovered that bowhead whales sing very complicated songs. Humpbacks also sing very complicated songs. But what's different about bowheads is that they... Humpbacks sing classical. Bowheads do jazz. Freeform jazz. They make up songs. And they're all different. And they're making up new ones the whole time. Okay. We don't know what those songs say, or really they are probably to do with mating, but not totally. Yeah. What's going on there? What are they saying? And in the the sort of the whole of animal behaviour research, what's happened over the last 30 years, as I'm sure you know, is that there's been a massive shift away from looking at animals as little pre-programmed automata to realising that their cognitive abilities are extraordinary and that consciousness is not an exclusive property of human brains, but there are other brains that have different sorts of complexity uh, and different uh, different sorts of cognitive abilities but of the same order of complexity as ours. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that we really 
really need to take on board. Yeah. So I think creativity, consciousness, thinking, play, all of those things are going on around us in other species in all sorts of ways. Mm. And the scales are beginning to fall from our eyes and mm. we're beginning to be able to see it. It's very exciting. It's yeah. incredibly exciting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's, there's been an assumption for a long time, I guess, since the sort of the, the, the botanists and the biologists and the zoologists of the 19th century that we kind of got things pinned down. But... Um, but for there to be this whole sort of realm is really exciting. Yeah, it, it's wonderful. And that clip for anybody who's not seen it of a crow sledging down a roof is uh, and the is other the fun. other clip to look at is look up Alex the parrot. Okay, I've not seen Alex the parrot. Alex the parrot. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do that after this. The day the war came is is an incredibly powerful, hard hitting uh, book that you were. Um, you were motivated to write by the situation in Syria, I believe. Yeah. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about the genesis of um, that story? I, uh, I had been listening to the reports of the war in Syria and I'd started to think about writing a book about war from a child's perspective. So I'd written just a few little notes and started to think about it. And then... Um, the government refused entry to 3,000 unaccompanied child refugees. And I was ashamed and incensed. And um, at that stage, I'd written only two lines of that book. I'd written, war took everything, war took everyone. Um, and in very much in the same way as the promise was a text that wrote itself. That text came out of quite a long time of kind of cooking these ideas and emotions, but then was catalyzed by uh, that announcement. Uh, and I wrote it very quickly, wrote it in, you know, a couple of hours. Um, and um, <laughs> rang Jackie and she said, oh, right, well, you need a chair to go with it. So she did a picture of an empty chair, yeah. we sent them to um, Emily Drabble, uh, who was then the editor of the Children's Online Guardian, uh, who very sweetly had both up on the website by the end of the afternoon. And then Petter Horacek did a chair too, and that went up. And then loads of people, we asked for people to send their chairs in. And mm. I... And your aim was to get 3,000 uh, chairs. Aim was to get 3,000 chairs. And I think we almost did it. Well, we certainly have done it now. I've been sent bazillions of chairs and children have done bazillions of chairs. And we've used illustrations of chairs. We've auctioned them to raise money for help refugees. And um, so, so that book was, uh, was a very kind of, became a very active, became an act of advocacy mm. for the plight of, uh, the plight of child yeah. refugees, and I, you know, I'm happy to say now that with Rebecca Cobb's fantastic illustrations, it's it's going around the world. There's going to be multi, there are multiple language editions. Um, it's just won a prize in America, and so it's doing the work that we wanted it to do. Yeah, yeah, and there, there is. Um, I, 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 I know it'd probably be extremely uncomfortable if I quote something that you've written back at you, oh, but, go but on. there is go there for is. It. There is a sort of thunderbolt uh, bit of writing there, which uh, for anybody who's not read it, I'll read. So it's for, again, it's from the perspective of, a, of a, a kid, a girl at school. That morning, I learned about volcanoes. I sang a song about how tadpoles turn at last to frogs. I made a picture of myself with wings. Then, just after lunch, while I watched a cloud shaped like a dolphin, war came. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful, that sort of... Whoosh, those last two words. But that's, that's how it would be. That's yeah. how it would be. And I tell you, one of the inspirations for that was, um, was I watched a documentary about the Aberfan disaster. Okay. And I remember Aberfan very clearly from when yeah. I was a little girl. And, of course, it hit home to my parents because they're from South Wales and my yeah. grandfather was a miner and, you know, yeah. I've got his mining lamp. Yes. And I had relatives who died in a in a pit disaster in the last pit on the Gower, yeah. um, and one of the victims who survived Aberfan said, 
I saw the slag heap coming down the mountain towards us and I thought, oh, it'll be all right. And then I saw it coming into the playground and I thought, oh, it'll still be all right. It won't come in here. And then I looked at my teacher and I saw it wasn't going to be all right. Uh, And that, you know, that's what we do for our kids. We try desperately, desperately to shield them, shield them, shield them, shield them, shield Mm. them from everything until the last possible moment when we can't. Mm. Uh, And so that's... That's how it would be for a child. You'd mm. go from drawing a picture of yourself with wings to my school's blown up with no intervening yeah. awareness or structure. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that's sort of the brutality of that juxtaposition, isn't it? That, that it makes it such a... Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Yes, cool. I'm almost <laughs> lost for words. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so... I, I know from reading your Twitter feed and chatting to you um, that you are um, aware, as all of us are, that we face some quite big problems in our world today, not least the climate emergency. And I think sometimes during periods of crisis, there is a feeling among some people that that, uh, the arts are kind of um, just a, a, a nice to have, but not essential. And I feel, perhaps as you do, that we need art and creativity now more than ever um, and I wanted to ask you what role do you think the arts have in helping us navigate these choppy waters that we're in at the moment okay well they've got three things to do first of all they've got to communicate the message and make it intelligible for people so uh, and the way you understand something difficult isn't just with your head, it's with your heart and your soul. So science can do head, but arts does heart and soul. Actually, arts does the whole lot. The other thing that it does is that it helps us to cope. It helps us to communicate with each other and hold each other's hand because we really are going to need to do that when things get very bad. And they may not get very, very bad, but they're going to get very bad. Uh, And the third thing is, when our current culture of things and stuff finally falls apart and finally reveals itself to be the unrewarding deceitful house of cards that it has always been what we have is real culture story and song and pictures and imagination and we have that even if all we have to make them is charcoal and broken concrete and that is what makes us alive and part of the world, and connected to each other. And that is what matters. That's what I think. Brilliant. Uh, I was going to ask you another question, but that is where we should finish. Because, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, so important. I'm going to ask, me, ask you my go, last go question. Go for it, go for it, go for it. Um, because um, uh, um, that was so momentous, I feel we need to undercut it. Now. <laughs> um, uh, silly. Uh, yeah, so um, Microbes. I was reading the oh, yeah. Microbes book. Yeah. Um, we are recording this interview just before Christmas. It will probably go out in the new year, by which time I hope we will have had snow. Yes. I want to know how microbes make snowflakes grow. Okay. Um, ice crystals need a little catalyst. They need a little nugget to grow on, right? Um, So high in the atmosphere, where there are little specks of microbial life that get drawn up into the high atmosphere, that's where the ice crystals start to form. Ah, Around those little things Uh in the high atmosphere. That's how microbes help snowflakes grow. Yeah. I wondered. I was curious. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's it's been amazing to talk to you, Nick. Thank you very much You're indeed. So welcome. Um, it's uh, I, I I love your work, and the kids Aww. love your work Thank too. You. But I think um, 
think you know uh, as 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 we, as we both know the creativity in all forms has a has a great role to play it's the most the important thing yeah it's the most important thing and it's it's um, i think you put that very eloquently so um thank you very much you're ever so welcome thanks so there we are nicola davis a brilliant mind a great writer and a valuable commentator for our times. Nicola's pretty active on Twitter. Her handle is Nicola Kids Books, and you can follow her there. And her, her books always make excellent presents for the young people in your lives. So, um, so yeah, do, do have a browse around her archive. Next time I will be talking to the first duo I've ever had on the Wind Thieved Hat. But for now, take care. Goodbye. <laughs>